Let's pray together. Father God, in anticipation of you being faithful to your church, your people, we bow before you asking that you will lead and direct us in truth, give us understanding and discernment, transform our lives, making us more in the likeness of your Son, giving us the heart of our Savior, a heart of compassion, a grace, and mercy, a heart committed and devoted to the truth of our God. Allow us in this hour, this time of worship, where we come under the authority of your written word to not only hear and discern, but, Father, to trust in and apply these things to our lives. And we rest upon your spirit to do this work for us. We appeal to you for your gracious, enabling help and power. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're moving in our study in Romans to Romans chapter 2, where we left off last week and for the previous weeks is the study of the wrath of God. And we see that progressive revelation of God's wrath that was revealed from heaven against those who had suppressed God's truth. This is a vision of the unbeliever who progressively rejects God, the knowledge of God. I'm grateful for the testimony of the Gideons this morning, and they represent the power of God's word. By the way, you never know when you're going to be on somebody's uh, presentation. That's not going to other churches, is it? (laughs) Pick another picture for your next one. I was just thinking as I was listening to Sandy speak that one of the first times that I came in contact with a Gideon scripture is when we moved up from Seattle, our family did as a child, and we rented a place from a farmer whose teenage sons were very rebellious and wild. I guess back then we'd call them hippies, but I remember out going out to the burn pile. That's where I first saw a Gideon scripture. They had received these small Gideon Testaments, and we've all seen the exact ones, the Testament, New Testament, and Psalm. It was a maroon cover, and there were probably three or four of them that were just cast into the burn pile. And it reminds us that while there are some that receive the Word of God graciously because they've been drawn by God to His Son, there are others like we see in Romans chapter 1, who, as Paul says in verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. They do away with God. And that ushered in this third and final almost rejection by God, a turning of man over to his depraved mind, a mind that wants nothing more to do with God. And we ended with a very tragic picture in verse 32 of those that not only practice improper things, but approve others that do so at the same time. But that is not the end of the story. It's not a hopeless end. Because the gospel is available even to those ones. Paul seems to turn a corner in chapter 2. We're still dealing with, still in view here, is the wrath of God, the judgment of God. But there's a different person in mind here, a different one that comes into the lens of Paul's review. Beginning in verse 1, Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, 
when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of his riches, of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But honor, glory, and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, And also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. To know God is to know his truth. It is to believe his truth. It is to obey his truth. And it most certainly, as Paul says in chapter 1, it is to worship God because of his truth. And because God has made himself sufficiently known, as it said in chapter 1, both inwardly and outwardly, all men are without excuse, as Paul writes in chapter 1 and verse 20. And as a result of man's deliberate rejection of divine truth, God gave man over to themselves, to their own sinful appetites and depravity. They were given over to a depraved mind to do that which is improper, to all unrighteousness, being full of all kinds of wickedness. And moving into chapter 2, Paul switches gears just a bit, changing the focus of his tension, but still remaining fixed on the judgment of God. And in contrast to the list of right unrighteousness and wicked violations against God's truth and those who are under God's present judgment, Paul turns his attention now to every one of you who passes judgment, as he writes in verse 1. These also, these ones are also under the judgment of God. And note, these ones also do not have an excuse. They are without excuse as well. Not only do the unrighteous suppressors of God's truth have no excuse before God, but those also stand in judgment of them have no excuse before God. And the implication from verse 3 is that the ones doing the judging here in chapter 2 do not believe they are under God's judgment, and they believe they are sufficiently righteous to judge those in chapter 1. So the question before us as we begin this study of chapter 2 then, who are these judgmental ones? What would be the description of them? And this will be in part what we're going to investigate this morning. There are some who believe that chapter 1, Paul deals with Gentiles who are deeply entrenched in the worst of sins. And it takes us right to the end of the chapter. But then you start in chapter 2, and these ones believe that Paul is now confronting Gentiles who are not quite as immoral. They're a bit more moral and who would object to the vile sins that are named in chapter 1. There are others who would suggest that at the end of chapter 1, Paul is pointing the finger at Gentile unbelievers. But the first part of chapter 2 is putting the spotlight on the Jewish community. And I believe there's some merit to that viewpoint in that Jews and Gentiles are under review here, beginning in chapter 1 and named also in chapter 2. 
So the idea of those two distinct people groups are very much on the mind of Paul. And we also know that the Jews were very condemning of Gentiles. They looked down on them as very wicked and unclean, that only the Jew has a reserved place in God's future kingdom. And the Jew very strongly judged the Gentile world for their unrighteousness. In fact, the Jews saw themselves as already guaranteed a place in the kingdom of God where the rest of the world would have to attain to the righteousness that they claimed they already own. Any sins they were, the Jews, guilty of were covered under those terms, that they were a chosen nation of God, that they owned the Old Testament law of God, and they owned the Old Testament scriptures. They are already in with God. And this seems to be the general context found in chapters 1 and 2, that of dealing with the Gentiles at the end of chapter 1 and the Jews at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul had just written that he had desired to come to Rome to bear some fruit among the Jewish believers, just as he had also done with the rest of the Gentiles. He was under obligation, he said, to preach the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. Verse 16, the gospel, of course, going first to the Jew. The power of the gospel, he said, is that which saves everyone who believes. Paul then takes the rest of chapter 1 expressing why the gospel is needed, which may very well be in, in a general way the Gentiles who did not have the revelation of the Old Testament scripture. They had the evidence of creation outwardly, and they had the knowledge of God inwardly, but they didn't have the Old Testament scripture or the direct revelation of God as did the Jews. The wrath of God upon those in chapter 1 could well be the Gentile world that suppressed the knowledge of truth and they slipped deeper and deeper into exchanging the truth of God for a lie. <clears throat> but what about the Jews? Are they already righteous and not subject to God's wrath as they would have argued? Is God satisfied or was satisfied with the righteousness of the Jewish people simply because they're the chosen of God, because they have God's law, that they're the keepers of God's law, as they felt. Chapter 2 may well have been written to address this question of the Jews' need for justification by faith, just as those in chapter 1. And certainly the subject of Jews and Gentiles is again named in chapter 2. But at the same time, if we consider who chapter 1 was written for, in verse 18 it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And at this point we are reminded that the Jews rejected also the truth of God as they rejected God's Son, so much so that they crucified Him. So no truth ex suppressors, no truth suppressors are exempt from the judgment that's named in verse 18 down through verse 32. And further, if we look at chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. Everyone would include not only the Jews, but the Gentiles, ever bit as much as verse 18 in chapter 1, includes everyone who suppresses the, the truth, Jew or Gentile. 
And therefore, as we move or transition into chapter 2, Paul says, therefore, a word that connects us with the previous judgment, it's now extending the wrath of God into this new section. And instead of naming the Jews as those who judge, Paul simply writes, every one of you. So standing back and looking at chapters 1 and 2 together, it certainly makes good sense that following Paul's declaration of the gospel, of justification by faith, that it's the power of God to save everyone who believes, and of justification by faith as revealing the righteousness of God, that Paul would address who is in need of this salvation, who is in need of this power of God. And maybe he does address the Gentiles first in chapter 1. And very, but very possible that he goes to the Jew in chapter 2. It fits, though, that at the end of chapter 1, it turns the lens of examination on the, lens, or on the sins of the Gentile world in particular. And it fits that in chapter 2, he addresses where the Jews in particular stand before God and in need of the same gospel. But we note here, Paul neither references the Jew or the Gentile at the beginning of either one of those texts. Beginning in verse 18, he says, all of you who suppress the truth. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, everyone who judges inappropriately. Both passages have a general application to all who would suppress the truth of God and all who would judge others without judging self in the same way. The scholar Leon Morris, in his commentary, he explains it from this perspective. Even though Gentile and Jew might be in view, Paul expands that to include all who suppress the truth and judge inappropriately. He says the explanation may be that, while it is true that in chapter 1, Gentiles are primarily in mind, the sins of all people are castigated. And here, chapter 2, while the Jews are at center stage, all who judge others are condemned. What this does for us this morning is it opens up beyond nationalities, beyond people groups. It recognizes that the wrath of God is on all prior to Christ. James Boyce goes even further to say that he believes the first part of chapter 2 is written not to Jews in particular, but to Jews and Gentiles alike, and it isn't until midway through chapter 2 that Paul addresses the Jew in particular. But Boyce also goes on to add that in his mind, it really does not matter that much because the focus of attention here in chapter 2 is all who judge improperly. If Paul is addressing the Jews in particular, he is at least addressing the morally superior attitude that they have over others, just as all of us are very capable of doing. And to that extent, Boyce agrees, at least in measure, with Leon Morris. And John MacArthur has a very similar view. The Jews were known to judge others harshly and view themselves as righteous. So as we enter into chapter 2, we can, in a very particular sense, understand that Paul very likely is writing to Jews, but if they're an example to all of us, in regard to judging others falsely. As one scholar pointed out, there's enough Pharisee in all of us to go around. Judgmentalism is a quality that we all may have in some measure. More to the point, the ones judging others here are moralists 
who believe themselves to be above the righteousness of others. And in this sense, even as Christians, we are no longer under the condemnation of God on account of Christ, but still we can look judgmentally at the sins of others, as named, especially as we look at chapter 1. We look at some of the sins in chapter 1, and it's pretty easy for us as Christians to come down hard on them for being so wicked. There is a caution for the church here. There's plenty for even the believer to learn from these passages. Yet from the context of chapters 1 and 2, whether a depraved mind or a judgmental moralist, all need the gospel. And because God has revealed himself sufficiently, Paul says both are without excuse, whether you're in chapter 1 or chapter 2. The clear thought from the opening words of chapter 2 is that there was a group of people, possibly the Jews, that Paul confronts who felt they had good reason for suppressing the truth of God's Son. And it's most likely that the Jews that Paul addresses here, there's an application for all who falsely judge from a position of thinking oneself to be morally superior to those being judged. So what do we mean by this false judgment? What are we describing here? And I want to give you some points as we move through our text that we're going to see in Paul's um, review of these judgmental ones. The false judgment is first that of hypocrisy. And we would see that in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, in the same way you judge others, you're going to be judged. And therefore, if you go to address somebody's sins, make sure you deal with the log in your own eye before you address the speck that is in their eye. Take care of that log. Then you go and deal with the sins of others. The Jews are a perfect example of those who did not do so. They found condemnation and filth and vileness in the world around them and thought themselves to be righteous, unconfessed, unacknowledged sins, or sins that we defend will put us in that position of hypocrisy. Second, not only are false judges hypocrites, but there is a personal standard of righteousness that is being implemented. Not God's righteousness, but a self-righteousness. This is where we would see the Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisees took in God's law, and then they added all these other laws of their own. And they expected others to live up to their righteousness, and if they did not, they were judged or condemned. A false judgment takes personal righteousness and makes it God's rather than resting upon God's righteousness alone. So hypocrisy, personal standards of righteousness, and maybe even a combination of these two in a third statement. There are standards of absolute perfection that we expect in others, but not for ourselves. That's what we call injustice. And where injustice is present, we know false judgment will follow. Standards of absolute perfection that's expected in others, but we don't abide by it ourselves. We're going to see these qualities of hypocrisy, personal standards of righteousness, and injustice as we move through this text this morning. After identifying how God progressively reveals his wrath from heaven on those who do not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, Paul turns to another group that have no excuse. Verse 32, 
of chapter 1 had condemned those who from depraved minds not only practice things that are improper, but they at the same time approve those improper things. They commend them to others. And it's because of this that those who judge these ones are without excuse or without a reasonable defense in a similar way. They have no defense of their judgment of others because like the previous group, they have in some way suppressed the truth of God, practicing themselves and giving approval to that which is contrary to God's ways. Verse 32, you will recall, was a condemnation of very devious sinners who live and approve that which is contrary to the ordinance of God. Those in chapter 2 are doing the same thing, according to Paul. He's now telling the Jews that they have no reason or no excuse for behaving this way. They have no excuse for their false judgments, being a very religious people and those holding to the direct revelation of God in the Old Testament scripture. The specific charge that is in view is that of judging others when they're practicing the same things. The implication of this charge is that, just like those in the previous verse, even though that which is known about God is condemning the matter, they're practicing them nonetheless. This is confirmed in verse 2 of chapter 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. This is a picture of those that know what God condemns. They're practicing it. And they're promoting it. The contradiction here was that the Jews were judging others for what they knew God condemned. And they were practicing the same things. Verse 3 shows that those doing the judging felt they had a free pass on the practice of those things. Though they knew God opposed them. In other words, since they were already approved by God as his chosen people. The sins that they practiced and approved. God just ignored. And he did this only for the Jew. The Jews were uh, exempt from this. But the Gentiles on the other side, they were condemned. This was a matter that Jesus took up in his Sermon on the Mount when Jesus called attention to God's law against murder, which the Jews would have been all over. Yeah, we're right there with you, Jesus. We don't murder people. We obey this. And Jesus took them further and exposed their heart of anger and hostility against others that it was a murderous heart. They excused themselves from that. Jesus spoke of God's law against adultery. The Jews would have been all over that. Absolutely, we are against adultery. But Jesus exposed even the adultery of their hearts when they looked upon somebody else that was not their own spouse and lusted for them. It was exposing the heart in that Sermon on the Mount that was not faithful to their marriage vows, not faithful to love as God called us to love both friend and foe. The corruption of their hearts were exposed even to practicing good deeds so that they would be noticed by men and be seen as good and moral people. The Jews had promoted themselves as morally upright and faithful to the law, but they did so with corrupt hearts that condemned them in the very acts that they accused the Gentiles of. And they approved their hearts. They approved themselves as righteous. 
That's a picture of the moralist who believes they are in good ground with God and somehow approve to judge others of the very things that they're guilty of. In the Jewish mind, God looked upon his special people differently than he does the rest of creation. But Paul is going to argue in verse 11, there is no such partiality with God. God's laws were made clear to the Jews in the Old Testament. They ignorantly presumed that God would not look upon their moral violations in the same way that he looked at the Gentiles in sin. But as the old saying goes, ignorance of the law is no excuse. What must have shocked the Jews in this passage is what Paul wrote in verse 3 when he questioned, Do you suppose that when you practice the things that you condemn others for, that you're going to somehow escape the judgment of God? Imagine the Jew hearing those words. Oh, they're all over chapter 1. Those are under the wrath of God. But what Paul says as he turns attention to chapter 2, you also are under the wrath of God. Those who judge others for doing the same thing that they are doing see themselves not as wicked because they believe they're not as immoral. And the problem here is that this is a description of those who practice some level of morality which they believe is going to excuse their own failings before God. At the same time, they're casting judgment on others. It's like the Christian today who would say, oh, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that one over there. The Jew understood from God's word that all men were sinners But because of their national identity, their possession of God's law, God's going to look at them differently. He's not going to judge them. Romans chapter 3. You know that passage well. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that does good. There's none that seek after God. Paul did not come up with that, you realize. That was in the Old Testament scripture. You go back to Psalm 14. Paul is just copying what the Jews had in their Old Testament scripture. And therefore the Jews knew there isn't a single one of them that does good. There wasn't one that was righteous. But they declared themselves so. So the Jews had an understanding of sin. The scriptures that they held fast to exposed the corruption of their hearts. By practicing some of the law and even adding their own rules to God's law, the Jews had come to believe that this would earn them the eternal favor with God and they would not be judged with the rest of the wretched Gentile world. But Paul writes to them, you don't have an excuse. The word of God has condemned all as sinners and none will escape the judgment of God. The clear message that Paul is building upon is that the Jew and the Gentile alike need Christ as their Savior. They need someone who will stand in their stead, that will be the atoning sacrifice. No, just because you are a Jew, you are not in with God. You do not own the eternal kingdom. You need the Savior just as much as the Gentile. And it's because the judges here in verses 1 to 3 had known the judgments of God that they were without excuse for the judging of others. Those false judges not only have an unbiblical view of their own unrighteousness, but they have a wrong view of God. And this brings us to verse 4. 
They had a wrong view of God. Number one, they had a wrong view of themselves. Verses one to three. But verse four, Paul says, you have a wrong view of God. In fact, if we look at verse four, we could condense, we could edit this to say, do you actually know God? Do you really know God? The Jews believed that they did. They certainly should have since they had possession of the word of God in the Old Testament scriptures. But if they truly knew God, they would have known his son as well. That's what Jesus taught. And the point made in verse 4 is that the one who wrongly judges others does not really understand God. Paul words it this way. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? There are two things named in verse 4 that these false judges should have known. Number one, they should have known the riches of God's character. And number two, they should have known the work of that character, the work of God's character. And both of those in verse four have everything to do with man's sin and God's salvation. So keep that in mind as we work our way through verse four. These qualities, these riches in God's character and the work of God all have to do with man's sin and God's working out his salvation. But we begin with the richness of God in his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience. The riches of God speaks of the value and the splendor of his character. And I think it's very important that Paul has put it this way. He doesn't just move the Jews to say, let's stop and look at God's character. No, he questions, do you think lightly of the riches of his character? This describes the wealth, the abundance, and the indescribable worth of God's attributes. And the very fact that Paul words it this way indicates that instead of thinking highly of self as incredibly moral creatures, these ones should have been thinking highly of God. And if they were truly thinking highly of God, they simply could not think highly of self. And this view of God would entirely have prevented men and women from false judgments and false assessments of others. On occasion, we come across those who claim to be Christian, who boast of their own splendid morality, their holiness. They boast of all the good works that they do, how moral they are and how exceptional they are as men and women who know and love the word of God. And then they turn to condemn others of having a lesser morality. These same ones with the same breath will attempt to exalt God and his word but this is nothing more than hypocrisy on their parts. When sinful men truly come into the presence of God's glory and they recognize his majesty, they see his holiness and character, they, they take in the perfection of his righteousness, at that moment there can be no boasting in self. If you truly value the riches of God's majesty, you cannot but be humbled. And this is what we see in Isaiah, is it not? When Isaiah, the great prophet of God, the great moral man, the righteous prophet of God, when he came into that vision of seeing the Lord Christ on his throne, filling the temple, and the heavenly beings were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Do we see Isaiah at that moment saying, I am a righteous man. I deserve to share that kingdom with this one. 
That is not the picture we receive, is it? It says that Isaiah simply cried out, I'm ruined. I'm undone. And I'm a man with unclean lips. I'm part of a people that is unclean. When we truly see the riches of God's majesty and we are struck in our hearts by the beauty of our Savior, we will be humbled, not exalting self. When men truly see God for who he is, like the great prophet Isaiah, we also will say, woe is me. I'm undone. Isaiah used the word to describe himself, woe or ruined before the exalted Lord. And that word not only describes a state of failure, but it's a state of silence. So Isaiah was saying, I am nothing and I have nothing to say. Isaiah, when he took in that awesome and glorious image of the Lord who was seated on his throne and declared three times holy, he crumbles before the Lord. Nothing to declare of himself. No righteous credential to offer except the knowledge of his own uncleanness and that of the uncleanness of his people. As we look especially in the Gospels and what Jesus dealt with in Israel, the Jews were renowned for boasting of their own righteousness, boasting of their good works. And one of the things they boasted most of, we know God. We know God. That is such a contradiction to those who are of true moral character. Those who most see God in the richness of his person can only see themselves more fully silent and humbled before him. And I would suggest that any who will boast of their knowledge of God and boast at the same time of their own splendid moral character are both disingenuous and they are hypocritical. To truly see God's glory can only humble the true child of God. Contrary to what Paul notes of these false judges, we are to see the richness of who God is. And Paul brings out three expressions that represent God in his saving way. God in his saving posture. I'm going to give you the three words that Paul uses, and I'm going to give you a supplemental word as well, just to offer some depth of understanding. Paul begins with saying the richness of God's kindness. He's questioning these judges, these Jews, do you take lightly the riches of God's kindness? It's a word that means God's goodness. God is good. We sang of that in our worship this morning. You are a good God. The first of these words, kindness, or as the King James more accurately reads, the goodness of God, deals with his, his virtuous way toward his people, his own moral excellence expressed towards his people. God acts in kindness, in gentleness, or even usefulness towards those who trust in his salvation through his son Jesus Christ. This is a quality of God that all men benefit from, saved and unsaved alike. They all experience in some way the goodness of God. Every time we draw in a breath, we're filled with food that comes from the earth. Every time we enjoy the beauty and provisions of nature, it comes from the kindness of God, the goodness of God. But above all of these things, the cross of God's Son is the greatest expression of His goodness. A goodness that men and women do not deserve. They cannot earn it. They cannot even make a contribution to it. 
Paul uses this same word kindness or goodness in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, where he writes, But when the kindness or goodness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see in those verses the work of God? Justifying, saving, regenerating, renewing. God is at work in his goodness. And there's no greater expression of the goodness of God than to bring salvation to those that don't deserve it. We don't take lightly the riches of God in that way. If anything, if we embrace the richness of God in his saving goodness, it means we are absolutely humbled before him to say, I have nothing in my hands to bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We can see within this attribute of God, he has acted towards sinners according to his nature. His work of regeneration, newing sinners, justifying all the atoning sacrifices that Jesus Christ made, that is the richness of God's goodness. Secondly, Paul addresses in verse 4 the richness of God's tolerance. We could say his forbearance. And I like that word forbearance. Because tolerance in our day and age implies something other. We have a world around Christianity that is demanding of us to be tolerant. And we don't want to accept their version of tolerance, which they mean includes all of their sinful ways. We're supposed to tolerate sin as if God himself tolerates sin, and he does not. In fact, he would sacrifice his own son to deal with our sin. So much did God not tolerate our sin what Paul means by God's tolerance is that God forbears with men in their sins the Greek word used here is used only twice in the New Testament and both times here in Romans God tolerance God's forbearance it means his self-restraint and what this means in regard to how God acts towards sinful men, even those in chapter 1, is that he does not punish the sinner immediately after he sins against God. God restrains himself from doing to man what man deserves from God. That is God's tolerance. He delays his punishment. He delays his vengeance. And while this restraint may vary from individual to individual, an example that is very obvious to all of us is going back to the garden. And we look at the sin of Adam and Eve. And God had warned that first couple, don't eat from that tree in the middle of the garden. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. They ate of that tree. Did they surely die that day? They did spiritually. But physically, Adam was 930 years later until he physically died. That's God's forbearance. Yes, the day they ate, they died spiritually to him. But in God's forbearance, he brought both of them to his redeeming grace. And even though they physically died, we are going to see Adam and Eve in glory. God's tolerance does not mean he tolerates sin. 
it means he delays the judgment against us that we deserve to receive. And this is true of all humanity in some measure or another. And you could see again how that rich quality is so important to our salvation. God did not strike us down the moment we sinned. Otherwise, the moment we came out of the womb, we'd have gone to Hades. God delayed. He forbears so that he can bring his people to salvation. The third quality that Paul says is rich in God's character is his patience or his long-suffering. His patience or his long-suffering. And this Greek word means, or it has with it, the prefix macro. Macro means something big or large, right? And that's describing God's long-temperedness. God is not short-tempered. He's macro-tempered. He's big and long and stretched out in his anger. Yes, God is a God of wrath, but he's long-suffering in the judgment that we deserve. Peter wrote of God's patience in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 when he determined, when God determined to destroy the world with a flood because of the wickedness on the earth was so great. But God delayed the flood for 120 years while Noah built that ark. And remember in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Noah was a preacher of the righteousness of God. So for 120 years, this man is preaching about God's goodness. That is God's forbearance. He declared his judgment. I am going to destroy the world. I'm going to do it with a flood. So build a boat, Noah. 120 years later, God brought that judgment. Each of these three words express more than just the character of God. I hope we see that. We often think of God's character characters merely as attributes but here it speaks more strongly of God's actions towards sinners because of his rich character this is how God has acted towards us in a saving way and how we should love his forbearance his long suffering because it allowed us the season to come to faith and be saved do we think lightly of the riches of God's saving grace in this way. This is what Paul is challenging these self-righteous moralists, these false judges who saw themselves as so justified, so righteous, so condemning of others. And he's declaring of them when you are so filled with yourself, you're thinking lightly of the riches of God. You just don't understand God. You don't know God. This brings us to the second part of verse 4, which is the work of God. Because of the richness of his character, he leads men to repentance. It's out of his goodness that God leads sinners to repentance. And this tells us several important things about true biblical repentance. Number one, it is the work of God. It is accomplished by his rich character. So number two is obvious. Because of this, man cannot repent of his own. Repentance is a work of God. It comes out of the goodness of his character. Therefore, man can't accomplish this by his own righteousness. This is where these Jewish people, these these moralists, these self-righteous judges went so terribly wrong. It's out of God's kindness that sinners 
are led out from under the wrath of God to enjoy his saving grace. The work of repentance that brings sinners to faith in Christ is not a work of man. Rather, it's a work of God's goodness. And this many times is taught to us in the word of God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30 to 31, it says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you've put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. It's God that does that. God grants this repentance. So therefore, repentance is not a work of man. It's not something we can contribute to God's saving grace. It's a work he must do. 2 Timothy chapter 2 expresses the same doctrinal reality about repentance. It's God's work. This is what Paul writes. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This is why the Gideons have asked us, pray for the harvest. Pray for those that hear the word of God. Because it's God that must do that work. God's the one that's going to open up the heart. He's going to cause this repentance to take place. What should have been known to these arrogant moralists is that there's no way that their works their adherence to the law, their keeping of their own rules that they added to the law. There's no way that those things could improve their spiritual condition before God. Regular attendance at the synagogue, being raised in a godly home, being part of those Jewish traditions and festivals, giving to the needy or acts of service, none of these can cause men to be right before God. Having an understanding of God and of their own sinful condition, should have told them that they had nothing to boast of except the goodness of God, which would bring them to repentance. This understanding should have stripped them of any temptation to condemn others with their false judgments. Instead, the wrongful judgments expose a wrong view of God. This brings us to verse 5, and I'm only going to be able to touch on this because we're going to use verse 5 to spring us forward in our next study. Paul writes, the wrong view of justice that these false judges had, these moralists in regard to the judgment of God. They openly condemned the actions of wickedness in others, yet they overlooked their own sinful actions with indifference. And for these self-righteous judges, they had no understanding of the richness of God's character, verse 4. And they had no understanding of the righteous judgment of God, verse 5. And again, we're going to pick up on this more next week. But the Jew of, of Paul's day, like the Jew of Christ's day, vaunted themselves as the righteous people of God who devotedly kept laws of God. Yet they were no less guilty of suppressing the truth of God than the most vile of the Gentiles. In fact, they held a greater guilt in that they held the word of God in their possession and still they rejected God's son that God's word testified of. So that Paul could say, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves 
in the day of wrath. Do you see a little bit of a change here in God's wrath from what we saw in chapter 1? In chapter 1, remember, that was a present revealing of God's wrath as God would, would progressively turn man over to their own sins, turn them over to their own sinful lusts. But these ones, it says, they're being stored up. God is storing up his wrath, letting it build greater and greater because of their own unrighteousness and the way that they judge others. Your stubbornness of heart, your unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourselves wrath that will be poured out on them on the day of God's judgment. By human standards, the Jews were the most moral people in the Roman Empire. They were the closest to the truth of God's word. They were the people God chose to raise up one among them, the Messiah, who would bring salvation to all men. But Paul writes that because of their stubborn and unrepentant hearts, they're storing up more and more and more wrath as each year passes. That is a dangerous symptom of self-righteousness. The heart becomes hardened and it will not repent. Because the moralist believes they have no further need to repent. They've already arrived. Yet God sees the matter quite differently. And we observe from chapter 1 that God's wrath was presently being revealed. Here it's being stored up against them. What Paul teaches in this passage is that the punishment of God's wrath is proportionate to the degree of man's sin. We looked at some pretty bad sins in chapter 1. As we're turning to chapter 2, how do you believe God views the sins of these ones? Because he's saving up his wrath. It's building in intensity. And these self-righteous moralists, judging others in their hypocrisy, finding little need of their own repentance, were saving up a sizable judgment against themselves that the, that the Gentiles, who had less of God's truth, these Jews were going to be judged in a greater way than the Gentiles who had less of God's truth. Now, both the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 are dealing with the sinful conditions of unbelieving souls who suppress God's truth, both Jew and Gentile. And the Gentiles objected to the limited revelation of God. Whatever God had placed within their heart, whatever they saw in the heavens or in creation itself, they rejected that revelation of God, that truth of God. But the Jews in chapter 2, they were given much, much more. They were given the divine revelation in the Old Testament scripture and the law of God. And all the description in chapter 2 is that of a Jewish unbeliever. There are most certainly lessons for the believer today. And I want to end on this, just giving you some lessons that we should be aware of from this text. First, we've seen the danger of moralism. The danger of moralism. And to be clear, this is not a warning against living moral lives. We're called as believers to walk in obedience to Christ. This is a warning against those who are satisfied in self because they are outwardly moral in some respects, but the heart is still corrupt. Such a person will approve themselves based on certain moral pillars that they have erected to show others, see how righteous I am. The moralists will create their own moral standards, and they're going to live by those standards, and they're going to hold others to those standards. 
However, where the heart remains defiled, there will of necessity be outward fruits of immorality that are mingled with those moral pillars. And this is what Paul describes in verse 1. They were judging others, but their actions are condemning them. The moralists may not commit adultery, but they're quick to judge others in matters that they're not entirely purified from themselves. And as believers, we need to be on guard against that kind of self-righteousness and more accurately, this kind of false righteousness. As Paul writes, they are without excuse. As believers, we need to guard ourselves against this kind of moralism. Secondly, we see the importance of discerning right from wrong judgment. Right from wrong judgment. We go back to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus does not instruct us to judge no one. He says, rather, by the same standard you judge others, you'll be judged by. He then tells us, if you see a speck in your brother's eye, it needs to be dealt with. But examine yourself first. If there's a log there, you better take it out. Don't bother going and condemning the sins of others until you've dealt with your own sins. We do need to judge sinfully or sinfulness correctly. Jesus teaches us that with the judgment we use on others, the same will be used against us. He then goes on to show that before we help others in their sin, before we, we judge the sins of others, <clears throat> we've got to take the sin out of ourselves, our own lives, our own hearts. Once our own sin is dealt with, we can see more clearly to address the sins in others. There's a lesson here in hypocritical judgment that Paul identifies in his text. And going further, Matthew 18 teaches us that when we see sin in other believers, we're to go to them, calling them to repent. But we have to observe that we're to judge only what God calls sins, not what offends our own personal standards or what's violated our own self-righteousness. The importance of discerning a right from a wrong judgment. And third, this morning, it's the humility of knowing God. And this is the one that struck me the most as I'm thinking about that image in Isaiah chapter 6 and what Paul says in verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of who God is? Because I think I might be guilty of this. To think lightly of the riches of who God is. The moment I begin to think I'm morally superior and I'm judging others, I'm thinking lightly, I'm diminishing. I'm thinking less of God than he deserves. Because if I see God for the richness of his character, I will be nothing but humbled before him. I have nothing except what Christ makes of me. This is what struck me on judgmental moralists accused by Paul. They think less of God's rich character. The self-righteous will boast of their, their high view of God and his word, but the reality is they're just boasting of themselves and they're diminishing the richness of who God is. These ones had a diminished view of God's character. And like Isaiah, when the true believer is most impressed with God's glory, he will be most humbled. Less satisfied in self, more satisfied in Christ, more satisfied in being united with Christ. How careful we need to be 
in regard to the knowledge of our God. It humbles us, exalts him. Father, the truths that are found here in the book of Romans are not only dramatic and stunning at times, but they're truly effective and needful in our lives. And I confess that as I read these things and learn more of what your spirit drove Paul to write to the churches in Rome, how much you were writing to me and my walk of faith. I pray that you will help us a church not to be these judgmental moralists that do so in hypocrisy, in self-righteousness, and without an understanding of your justice. Help us, Father, to walk in our own lives in a way that you, you are worthy of. And help us to walk in a way that helps others to do so also, not according to our glory, but according to yours and yours alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.